this paper in particular, it really just stemmed from a resident who wanted to have a conversation that I wasn't sure he was prepared for and asking him to simulate it. And it just sort of led to a description of that exercise. So welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. So today we're talking about just-in-time simulation, and we're talking about it as a method for teaching and learning about high-stakes communication with our patients and families. We're speaking with Dr. Laura Rock, who's an intensive care specialist from Boston. Now, this is a special episode for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. It's a joint release with Simulcast, another podcast that I co-produce with some colleagues focused on, as the name suggests, healthcare simulation. So when Liz Armstrong suggested this article in Academic Medicine on which the episode is based, I was really grateful for the opportunity to connect our work at Simulcast and that of our healthcare simulation colleagues with the Harvard Macy Institute community. So, happy listening. Now, by way of a preview to this, uh, I think we all know that practicing communication, particularly if we get some good feedback, it helps us get better. We know it's especially important for so-called high-stakes communication, but um, I'm pretty sure, as Laura will tell us, really, is there any other kind? Uh, And maybe the bit that this takes us towards thinking about is the idea that just-in-time simulation might be a useful tool for that. Now, I'm going to introduce my guest first, and this is Dr. Laura Rock, who is a pulmonologist and critical care doctor who works in the intensive care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. She is a Harvard uh, Medical School affiliated um, faculty as well, and she's got a particular interest in communication and teamwork, which is how I have got to be her friend, Uh, and indeed she as my friend, uh, by teaching at her own institution, also with the Centre for Medical Simulation and also through writing, uh, both in journals, blogs and podcasts. So how are you, Laura? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, it's just such a pleasure. And I don't think I've underlined enough how much uh, being your friend has influenced my own communication strategies, everything about emotion before cognition, don't answer feelings with facts. I feel like in some of my own uh, teaching work, your words come out of my mouth quite frequently. Well, that's good to know because I've seriously had to up my storytelling game as a result of my friendship with you. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right, now I'm going to give the details of the paper, and for simulcast listeners, obviously, we will have a link to this. Uh, but this, the title of the paper is Communication as a High-Stakes Clinical Skill, Just-in-Time Simulation and Vicarious Observational Learning to Promote Patient and Family-Centered Care and to Improve Trainee Skill. And this is in Academic Medicine, very high-tier journal, from March this year, 2021, with Laura as the sole author. So why don't we wind back a little bit with some background, Laura. Tell us a little bit about, well, your clinical work and your communication skills work. Tell us a bit about the context for this. Uh, Well, okay, I'll I'll go way back and say I was really drawn to critical care medicine in part because of the um, really high stakes and challenging uh, conversations that we have with patients who are facing either end of life or just really difficult um, situations and the realization that 
a lot of our patients die, but family members live with their experience of the illness for the rest of their life. So we sort of um, really have to honor their experience as well. And when I became a critical care attending, I was fortunate to be given an opportunity to develop a communication course for promoting skills between clinicians and patients and families. Um, That sort of coincided with diving into the world of simulation. So I really, from the beginning, merged my simulation work with communication training. And we've actually had a course running at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center for over 10 years where we use simulation to teach communication skills. We actually started it with um, residents managing a critically ill patient in sim and then going into a family meeting to discuss that that patient's care. And over time, I, I've realized um, that it's really hard for patients and families to trust us when we don't actually convey that we trust each other. So now I'm actually getting more involved in teamwork and um, team debriefing and how we can encourage more trust among teams and even further improve the trust that patients and families can feel for us. But this paper in particular, it really just stemmed from a resident who wanted to have a conversation that I wasn't sure he was prepared for and asking him to simulate it. And it just sort of led to a description of that exercise. Mm, Okay. So just to sort of recap on that a little bit, you're in intensive care, you're having these conversations, some about end of life, some about interventions, some about just the fact that patients are really sick. And I think you position this nicely in the paper as well, this context of COVID, how it's always hard in the places where you work and where many clinicians work. But this was particularly difficult because uh, having visitors and having PPE compromised a lot of the things that you found helped people in their communication. So it was sort of doubly tough. Uh, I think one of the things that comes out quite early in your paper as well is this idea, sure, we have courses, but now we want to make the most of our time in the clinical environment and learning it. Uh, Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's a shift a lot of people are making. It's kind of, oh, we're doing this stuff in sim, but how do we do whether it's clinical debriefing or debriefing on real patient episodes, but now you're actually talking about simulation in the clinical world as opposed to often a course in a sim lab or wherever. Yeah, you know, maybe you know people that um, can sit down and read a chapter about, you know, all of the different causes of fever or um, a lengthy diatribe on hyponatremia abstractly when it's not connected to patient care, but I'm not one of those people. I And I think most of us learn best when we're um, learning uh, skills that can help us with a patient who's right in front of us. And we do know that adults, and I think children too, but we talk about this in, in um, andragogy, that um, adults really want relevant learning and problem-based learning. And so when we take a problem that we are having to deal with very um, urgently and that is very relevant for that day and that patient, we're going to really have a captive audience who I think is it's a very high-yield moment to learn and practice and get feedback on important skills that are going to be not only high yield for that learner, but be extremely helpful for the um, patient and family centeredness for them. And that, you know, we can improve the experience for our patients and family if we can make sure our trainees are prepared to do a good job. 
Mm, absolutely. And we might come back to that, this sort of tension between learning in the workplace, getting the work done, supervision, doing a good job yourself. But I did want to dive into what we're talking about in terms of this just-in-time approach to getting people ready for the high-stakes communication. Now, you describe an example beautifully in the paper, but maybe you could sort of take us through what does this actually look like if you've got a trainee, you've got a difficult conversation that's going to happen with a family uh, member, how does the just-in-time approach look? So uh, just-in-time in general, or um, just-in-time simulation really has to do with doing something, learning something, practicing something right before you have to do it. And I've seen this um, most commonly when um, in procedural training. So a trainee has to do an LP. So grab a LP model and, act, and have them learn the different steps and become familiar with the kit and practice placing an LP. Or we do this with an IO right before placing an IO in a code, for example. Well, maybe you wouldn't do it in a code, but if you're doing training. So so it really is analogous to that. Um, And um, having a trainee who has to have a difficult conversation and you, you either... I may not be that familiar with this particular trainee's skill level in communication, or um, or maybe I do know them, and I feel like, um, well, I think almost any of us could benefit from talking through a conversation that we have to have. So it's really, um, it started off kind of informally um, when a resident really wanted to have this conversation, and I said, okay, can you tell me how you think you're going to do that? And he said, Sure, I'll just, you know, I'll just call and say this, this, and that. Well, as a simulation leader, you know that um, knowing how to do something is not the same as effectively doing it, because if it were, we wouldn't need practice or simulation. So, you know, what, what it really boils down to is asking a trainee, no, no, I'm not asking you sort of abstractly to describe how you think you might go about this please tell me what words you are going to use and how you're going to talk to this family member. Yeah, and you say this nicely in the paper and you reference uh, Chris Ardress's work here. Years of research on productive conversations in the organisational behaviour field have demonstrated that people's espoused approaches to difficult conversations, what you just talked about, I'm going to say this, rarely match their actual conversations, which is what you actually see. And, and I think that's so right, isn't it? And yet we're reluctant to do that rehearsal piece that you're talking about. It feels like it exposes us too. I, I really have to attribute that um, insertion by Jenny Rudolph, who <laughs> who recommended that reference and <laughs> when she read this paper and gave me some edits. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not surprised because we have heard that come out of her mouth very productively many times. Yeah, okay. All right. So so you this is about so the typical thing looks like you get the trainee and they don't just get to tell you what they're going to say. They actually say it and role play it with you prior to doing it and they get some feedback, is that right? Yes, and the feedback is among, you know, is is probably the most critical piece. So people are having conversations from day one of internship without observation and feedback. And um, I really love the concept that's um, espoused by Doug Lamov, who wrote, among other books, Practice Perfect, because he says, um, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. So um, you could be doing something 
you know, and get extremely efficient at doing something, you know, kind of ineffectively, but you might not never, you might never know that there's a better way to do it. So if we don't get high quality feedback and opportunities to practice and get more feedback, we may just keep doing uh, what we're Mm. doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's another layer to that, Laura, because I feel like this touches on something we've talked about at Simulcast a fair bit, which is the so-called negative training. The fact that you don't get feedback on your communication also sends a message that it's not important as opposed to having these attendings stand over the top of you when you're doing your central lines or your arterial lines or your intubations. It's kind of like, yeah, just go off and have a chat with that family. And without getting the feedback, it means it devalues the skill itself, I think. So multiple messages that happen. I Thank you for bringing that up because I think that is really the, the concept that um, that inspired me to use the title that I did for this paper. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, while we're on the feedback, because I think people would be interested to know how that really looks. And again, I can see you're drawing on some advocacy inquiry here, but I'm going to again quote from the paper. Effective feedback requires focusing on just one or two key learning points, sharing an honest perspective using specific data to describe any performance gap, and then exploring with genuine curiosity to better understand what drove the trainee's actions and then teaching to meet those needs. Uh, I guess that it would be familiar to many people in simulation who are trying to use some of those approaches in exploring performance gaps. Yes. And, you know, just even a really small example of being specific and and connecting that with um, curiosity, um, you know, uh, might be, I noticed you asked Roger's sister a question. Um, I also noticed that you interrupted her after she uh, started answering you, which made, and and she um actually looked down at the ground and it made me think she was frustrated and and possibly thought that you weren't actually interested in what she had to say. So I'm concerned that your question um, didn't convey a sense of of real curiosity. So I'm wondering, you know, what was going through your mind when you um, asked her and then didn't listen for the response. So, and I think when you're really specific about an action and even pairing it with a reaction, it, it helps diminish the defensiveness that we can often get if we're not very specific in our feedback. Yes, and very different to if you use words like, uh, how do you think things went over with the family? You know, which is a sort of sneaky, very psychologically unsafe th- way to ask potentially the same issue. So what you describe is much more uh, explicit, direct, and I think actually considerate for the learner. Right, or even if I had said... Um, yeah, you know, that meeting was okay, but I, I, I feel like you could have been more patient or I feel like you could have let them, you know, speak a little bit more interu- uninterrupted. And I don't know, the trainee might be thinking, well, I did that because I didn't give an example and I wasn't really specific about the effect that I thought it had on the other person. Yeah, so I think when you read this, it's probably good to go back and remind ourselves about those questioning techniques and, in fact, the whole concept of double-loop learning on which they rest and the principles about um, advocacy and inquiry. Now, one of the really nice things that happens in this paper uh, is that you're very structured in the way that you outline some things. There's some lovely little bold headings, and so I'm going to go through the key steps that you describe, uh, some of which we've already covered, but the first is to assess the trainee's understanding of both the clinical situation and the goals of the conversation and fill in the gaps. And then I'm going to put these two together, determine which portion of the encounter may be most 
challenging for the trainee. So this is actually a bit of a diagnostic piece that people often don't do when they're doing any kind of feedback, Laura. Again, can you sort of flesh that out for us uh, maybe with an example, if you like? Sure. Uh, I think, well, tackling the second one first, I, th- I think we we sometimes, in addition to um, sort of not giving communication the priority in our time and training, which can give trainees the impression that it's not that important, we can also um, treat communication um, encounters as sort of a procedure that anyone can do. As opposed, you know, you wouldn't have a trainee go um, do an entire chest tube if they've never practiced it, if you didn't know how, if you didn't know if they knew how to do it, if you didn't know if there were aspects of it that they might find challenging. And a, a communication encounter can also have sections, some of which may be easier than others. So knowing where they might get stuck and where they've struggled and where they actually might be effective can um, allow them to participate without necessarily doing the entire thing and possibly sabotaging the relationship. So maybe they could introduce the team and and establish trust, which isn't that easy, but maybe they could, um, but perhaps not have the, you know, decision-making aspect where we want to um, make an end-of-life decision that is in keeping with the values of the patient. And maybe they don't have the skill to really uncover what some of those more subtle values might be. Mm. You know, a lot of trainees might be game to have these conversations, partly because they're just, they're really excited to be, um, you know, in really in charge of the patient's care or because they want to, you know, impress the attending or for whatever reason, or maybe they really want to offload the work of the team because they're a helpful team member. Um, But at the same time, I need to know um, before I really uh, trust them with this extremely high stakes um, intervention whether they really understand the clinical situation and whether they really understand the goals of the conversation. So they might think, well, we need to know whether or not we're doing a trach. But I might think, I need to know if they understand um, where we are in the clinical situation and um, we don't need to end this conversation with a yes or no about a trach. What we do need to end with is a sense of this patient's goals and values. Mm, absolutely. And and as you say, what you described there really, really emphasizes we need to know the elements of communication to be teaching about it, because it might be something as simple as, sure, I can actually convey empathy and I've worked on that, but maybe I don't know how to deal with silence. It can be little, quite small and focused things like that. Simulcast, connecting the simulation community. All right. So just to come back to our key steps then we've assessed their understanding we've thought about what might be most challenging and then the next couple of uh key steps that you describe are provide scripts and refresh or teach focused communication skills so this is almost uh pulling out some of those part tasks within the whole task and really narrowing in on it for people can you again give it examples of that providing scripts means actually providing phrases that are useful to convey a message. Um, And these can be, these can just really make the communication of that concept more efficient and can also decrease the cognitive load for the learner in that conversation so they can focus on other aspects of the communication. Sometimes I get ideas for phrases from trainees because they have a really beautiful way of explaining something and I've included those 
in my later teaching to other trainees. So I think, you know, we can create repertoires of scripts that we can share and really, and, you know, start to kind of create your own little library of, of phrases that really fit your own style. Um, but anyway, providing um, some language to use, I particularly love the ones by vitaltalk.org, um, which are available online. And they had a really great um, free resource, particularly related to COVID. Um, there were many other ones as well. And then when I, if I identify a specific communication skill that I think will be particularly needed in this encounter or that is particularly lacking in this trainee, I may decide to take a few minutes to teach that skill. So an example might be pausing, um, the value of pausing and how it it may radically change how something I'm saying is received. Um, It often, as you know, since I love talking about the importance of of, um, uh, emotion, it may be identifying and responding to emotion um, because I think this is something we aren't, we don't really talk about enough and we don't um, widely discuss the skills for and the impact of. And I think, you know, um, emotion has a huge impact on what people are capable of processing and hearing when they're dealing with a really high stress situation. So um, we need to know how to respond to emotion to decrease the intensity of emotion and explore the values underlying the emotion so that people can participate in the conversation. Yeah, And so that might be an example of something that um, people that may benefit from having even a two minute little, you know, teaching moment on. Mm. And it relates to that next step, which is preparing the trainee for the emotional aspects of the conversation. And again, some of your thoughts about how we need to think about them not just having a reaction that is, here's the facts in response to the feelings that they hear. Yeah, um, actually, you know, I really, when I wrote that, I really was thinking about it um, from the perspective of prepare the trainee for the emotion of the person you're talking to. Um and don't, you know, this is, they may be so accustomed to life in the ICU and being on a vent may be so normalized for that trainee at that moment that they forget that this is the worst thing that's ever happened to the person they're talking to. But now that we're talking about it, I realize that I, I mean, it's also a great moment to prepare the trainee for the emotions they may experience having this conversation. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is, again, that can be easy to get for seasoned campaigners. Uh like yourself or others, even if we think we're pretty good at communication, sometimes we can forget the emotional journey that trainees are on is different to ours. Uh, Yeah. All right. So we've gone through this. We've thought about where the trainee is at. We've thought about what's going to be hard in the conversation. We've given some tips and uh, phrases and practiced the micro skills. We've thought about the emotional aspects in particular. We've simulated the conversations and given some of that lovely feedback that you're talking about. So uh, this all sounds very nice, Laura, but have you had any experiences where you've sort of not, where it hasn't worked out so well and you've tried to do this and despite your best efforts, it's either been a not as good outcome as you would have hoped in the conversation or it just sort of fell flat in terms of the uh, just-in-time simulation process? Um, no, honestly, this this truly was based on a real experience, but I, I do think, you know, we're human and each day is different and we may not have the time to, um, even in a rudimentary way, go through these steps when we're in a busy clinical service. And, I, you know, of course I have conversations that don't go well and I hope that I can use them for um, 
learning and and just being being a better teacher of what I thought was ineffective or um, how to do it better the next time. Um, overall, I think these steps that um, that we've just discussed can actually be pretty quick. So it can be like either I kind of already know the trainee's understanding. I, I kind of, of course, I kind of have a sense of whether they really get the situation or not. And um, I kind of, if I've already worked with them for a few days, I may know where they might get stuck. And I can just quickly say, hey, you know, in this moment, I think it's really helpful to say, look, uh, we are the experts. We are the medical experts. You're not going to be making medical decisions, but you're the expert on your brother. So we really rely on your expertise to make this decision together based on what you know about your brother. You know, that might be an example of providing a script. And then, um, you know, teaching a communication skill, I might say, look, I think um, you really need to understand the values of this patient before you discuss the intervention, because if you find yourself discussing the layers of fascia, you have to cut through to do a trach, and you really don't know what this patient's life is like or what makes a good day for them, you've, you're in the wrong part of this conversation. So that's really like all of the steps until, you know, until preparing and simulating that, um, how long did that take, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a couple of things in what you're saying there. One is you're not making this a recipe that looks the same every time. You're saying there's a set of principles about just-in-time simulation of these conversations that will look potentially different depending on the trainee, the family, all sorts of other things. I think the other thing you're nicely bringing up is that, uh, you know, you're making a judgment about the families themselves. And many of the families are excellent teachers for us in our communication. And some of them will be at different points in their journey where they're able to be very generous with that uh, teaching and, and feedback for us. The other thing which you're, I think, touching on there, which a fair bit of the paper talks about, but which we haven't really focused on here, is your, uh, you describe it beautifully here, the ancient educational dilemma, where you're thinking about, are you doing this conversation yourself? Or are you having the trainee do a just-in-time simulation and do it themselves? Or actually, have you got great com uh, confidence in both the trainee and the situation that you're just going to let them go and do it? And that is a judgment that you have to make as a supervisor. As you say, it's not a new dilemma, but it's one that uh, can be, I think, a new set of considerations if you're talking about communication skills. Oh, I think that's so true. Um, I think, you know, when I think about our hardest communication encounters, we have the potential to, um, you know, we have the potential to trigger a decisional regret or have people have an irrational attachment to a decision they've made that may be really hard to undo or, um, you know, help a patient uh, die with dignity or live in a situation that they might not have wanted. And so I think the repercussions of these conversations um, can't really be overstated. So it is a dilemma because, you know, I might say this is too important. I can't, I can't um, leave this to a trainee. I mean, our trainees, I think, are quite excellent. So most of them, um, I really do have a lot of confidence that they can do well um, and and really offer the families and the patients that skill that they deserve. Um, but sometimes I may make a judgment call that that's not the case. And it, it is tough because if we don't allow people to practice in medicine, then they're not going to develop the skills. Um, but then, you know, we have to remember um, 
that our true our greatest obligation is to the patient. Absolutely. It makes me think of one other thing that you didn't write in your article, though, uh, because it's very much written from the point of view of the teacher, uh, one of us thinking about this. But I would read this as a trainee and think I should be asking my supervisor for a bit of just-in-time simulation and feedback. Uh, I would like to think that is one of the takeaways for readers who are sometimes or more often on the other side of this supervisory uh, dynamic. So maybe it is a good idea for your trainees to read it. Interesting. I mean, the original title, instead of saying um, trainee skill, it said and diminished trainee stress. Um, Because I did feel like, especially during COVID, you know, a little over a year ago, the trainees really were incredibly stressed. And I think, you know, the data on um, trainees, communication training, and the experiences they have with these high stakes conversations shows that they at least traditionally, I think this has maybe changed in the last couple of years, but in the past, we didn't really get a lot of communication training and we were tasked with really difficult conversations right from the beginning and many of them were very stressful. Yeah, absolutely. Come and join us on Twitter and Instagram at sim underscore podcast. All right. Well, I suppose we should be starting to think about the take-home messages here and and sort of next steps for you. Can I ask you first a a tough kind of evaluation question? Uh, Do you think the conversations in your intensive care unit are better now? I think that I can feel more confident with a trainee who I might not know as well performing these skills. Um, I've been focusing on communication in critical care for 16 years in my ICUs, and I and our our program really does emphasize communication. So, as you were saying in the very beginning, when we sort of let people go off and do difficult um, conversations, we we send this message that it's not that important. But in our ICU, we actually replaced our morning teaching one hour before rounds every Wednesday. They get communication training instead of. ARDS, press or event management. So it really, I think, does send the, um, you know, changes the hidden curriculum. It changes or the not so hidden message that this is as important as everything else you're going to learn. I guess the question, because people listening to this will no doubt be impressed, they'll be keen to go back and read the paper, Laura, as well as lots of other things that you've written. Uh, what advice would you give to people if they were thinking, I want to give that a bit of a go so that they didn't just get a whole lot of strange looks from their trainees or fellow attendings uh, when they started doing it? You know, I think it can be quite casual. Well, you know me, I'm pretty casual in everything I do. <laughs> so I think, you know, just, I mean, sometimes even in a um, high stakes, difficult conversation in the in the tra- trainer trainee um, interaction, you can inject a little humor and say, uh, "Yeah, I know you kind of just told me what you're what you think you're going to say, but let's give it a whirl. Like, are you are you up for that? Can we just practice it? Because I think it can be pretty different saying the words out loud. And um, so I think just taking it down a notch and keeping it you know, light and not making it this like formal kind of evaluation moment and just saying, I'm here to just make the conversation easier for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the things about this. It it doesn't require a big implementation strategy. You can literally just start doing this as part of your everyday. And it's a huge uh, strength, I think, of the the approach you're describing. Uh, Yes, you, you actually spoke a little bit about this already, but were there any other 
tips, I suppose, or reflections you would have for those of us who try and write stuff. Uh, this isn't a traditional study. You don't have a big evaluation outcome. You haven't offered it as original research, but it's a pretty important message and you've got it in a real top tier journal. So thoughts on that experience and or reflections for either yourself or others. So I, um, I'm only now getting into doing more research-based writing because I'm currently um, with the help of a lot of really brilliant qualitative analysis researchers going through a debriefing program that I did and, and um, going through the analysis and writing that up. But until this time, um, I haven't done a lot of research. And I, you know, I think in when I was early in my career, I felt like, oh, I won't have anything to write. I'm not a big researcher. I, I don't have a real clinical um, area of expertise that's like some special niche. But I have learned that if you enjoy writing and you have something to say, that there is an audience for you. Um, and these these do um, your you know your perspective matters and and it can be valuable and accepted in in high profile journals. So if you enjoy writing and you have a cool case or some really interesting perspective that you think will help others, then just write it and submit it and see what happens. And it might not have to be academic medicine. You know, I know you also write for blogs and you've got to find target audiences where you can. And occasionally that'll be academic medicine and more often it might be somewhere else. But I think you're right. Getting the message out there is is uh, important. And I think the writing skill is not to be underestimated. And you sort of emphasize you've had assistance with that. I think you write beautifully anyway, but I think it's probably a good illustration that you need to work on your writing if you want to think about getting your message out. Yeah, I mean, actually, one of the most fun things I wrote was um, ended up being on a BMJ blog, which was the Don't Answer Feelings with Facts paper. So you can just have fun with it. it just- All right. Well, we probably should wrap it up there. Lovely conversation, of course. And just to remind Simulcast listeners, I'll have the link to the paper on the uh, website. But just to remind us, this has been a paper from Academic Medicine in March this year titled Communication as a High Stakes Clinical Skill, Just-in-Time Simulation and Vicarious Observational Learning to Promote Patient and Family-Centered Care and to Improve Trainee Skill. And we've been talking with the author, Laura Rock. Thank you so much, Laura, for your time. Thank you, Vic. And if anyone is listening and decides to try this and you have a great or terrible experience, I would love to hear about it. Yeah, fantastic. All right. <laughs> I might take you up on that, Laura. So thanks for listening to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laura Rock. Uh, If you're here, can I just remind you to rate us on Apple Podcasts? Don't forget to subscribe. And indeed, if healthcare simulation is an interest of yours, also feel free to subscribe to Simulcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any of the usual places. So this is Victoria Brazel signing off for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast.